invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 5, as we continue following the narrative lectionary through the Gospel of Mark, paying close attention to both what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, um, who and how he interacts with. This morning we'll be looking at Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. As we turn our attention to God's word, uh, let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Lord, we pray that this may be a sweet hour of prayer for us. And Lord, we pray now that you may send your Holy Spirit here among us, in our hearts and in our minds, that we may be open to the hearing of your word, to what you have to say to call to us, to better know who you are, and to better know how to live our call that you have given us and equipped us for. By your Holy Spirit, illumine your word to us this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, 
but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's your ideal social setting? We talked about this with staff a little bit this week. Are you a person who prefers the, the one-on-one connection? You know, no crowds, no big groups, just, just one person to talk to. Or are you maybe the one who likes a small group? You know, enough people to keep the conversation lively and to, to share different sides of the story. Or maybe you're someone who's energized by crowds. You know, the more people, the better. The more that's happening, the more activity, the more excitement, the more that that gives you energy. I kind of gravitate towards, well, we all enjoy those things in different ways. I really like crowds, but with a few conditions. In the back of church in the narthex, I love crowds. I love getting to see friends that I care about deeply, or maybe the opportunity to meet and make a new friend. The crowd at the back of the church, great times, life-giving for me, energizing, because, you know, I like you guys. But there's a certain kind of crowd that I don't really like. There's walking through crowded cities, Like when Jesus is walking through this crowd, where there is people pressed in all around you. I see Braden nodding. He's not a big fan of this either. No, it feels a little bit claustrophobic, or maybe for some of you it's germaphobic. Like, who's touching me and bumping up against me in the crowd? I don't really like crowded places where it's not conversation-based. It's just lots of people going their separate ways. And I think just being the farm child that I am, you know, I like a few people, maybe, you know, 40 acres of cornfield is just a lot more my style. I would say maybe I have a little bit of metropolitan anxiety. I don't like crowded cities. I don't know if metropolitan anxiety is a real thing or if I just made that up, but Jim Hooksima can straighten that away for you. I have anxiety in the crowd because I don't know all that's going on I don't know all the people, and I don't really like if I'm amongst a bunch of people that I am, I'm not going to actually have a chance to get to know. There's too much happening. There's too much that I don't understand. And so when I'm in a city, I just want to get to where I'm going. I don't really take much time. And Caitlin can tell you I have what is probably called a pathological pocket check routine, where the whole time I'm walking, it looks like I'm just keeping rhythm, but I don't have rhythm. I can barely sing and clap my hands at the same time. What I'm actually doing is repeatedly going, keys, wallet, knife, phone. Keys, wallet, knife, phone. And and I'll sing a song to it. Keys and wallet, knife and phone, knife and phone. Keys and wallet, knife and phone. But it's because of my anxiety. I change from one setting to the next. In the crowd at the back of church, life-giving. In the crowded city, I'm anxious. I'm a little bit off. 
and I'm making sure that I'm wearing shoes in case I have to you know, use Taekwondo or run. I don't like wearing sandals in cities, no matter how hot it is. All right, that's enough anxiety for me to share today. Jesus is not affected in any kind of anxious way, no matter what the social setting is. Already in the Gospel of Mark, as we follow Jesus through the story, Jesus has demonstrated complete control and confidence and steadfast compassion in the one-on-one interactions. Jesus has been intentional in teaching his disciples in the small group. And Jesus, even in the midst of these crowds that Braden and I don't really care for, that crowd and press up against us, Jesus is unfazed. He's aware of what's happening. And even when someone touches him in the crowd, he knows why and takes a moment to debrief what happened. The other theme of this story, because this is really a story within a story, is the relation between faith and healing. And that's another topic that is deep. And maybe just the way I get a little bit uncomfortable in crowded cities, when we try to come up with what's this relationship between faith and healing, it might make us a little bit uncomfortable because we might not have all the answers to the questions that people might ask us. What is this relationship between faith and healing? But as we turn to God's word, we have two examples here of faith and healing. And it's really a story within the story. And so this morning, I've got a few slides just to help us see the parallels in this story. Because every single element of each of these stories, of Jairus' daughter and the woman who is bleeding, are repeated. They're symmetrical stories. With Jairus' daughter there is faith. And with the bleeding woman, there is faith. In the case of Jairus' daughter, it's the faith of Jairus who comes to Jesus and says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus has the faith and trust that if Jesus comes to his daughter, she will live. The bleeding woman also has faith. She says to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Both of these stories have tremendous amounts of faith. There is weight being leaned on with this type of faith and the hope and expectation that Jesus will heal. Now, they're all desiring Jesus' touch as well. The woman thinks if she can just touch his clothes, she'll be healed. And Jairus invites Jesus, please just come and put your hands on my daughter so that she will be healed and live. Now, one of the things to note about faith and healing, that mistakes can be made of when we try to make an over-formulaic approach to this. It's kind of like the parables, as Pastor Dustin preached last week, if we make X plus Y equals Z every single time. Jairus and the woman who are bleeding are both expecting that Jesus' touch will heal them. But we also know that Jesus doesn't even have to touch someone to heal them. Jesus can speak it and make it so. The centurion's daughter was healed because the centurion knew and had the faith that Jesus could say the word 
and it would be so. Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, not by having to touch him, but by calling out his name. Another repeated detail in the story. Both of these, both of these instances of healing have 12 years mentioned. Did you catch that little detail thrown in there? Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. And the woman who's bleeding has been bleeding for 12 years. Once again, there's attention drawn to the numbers, but not for the sake of the numbers. 12 is not the limit by which Jesus can heal. But we have a 12-year-old girl who is young and who has probably had kind of an emergency come up that Jairus has rushed to Jesus, hoping for Jesus to heal her. An instant. But the woman who's bleeding has been bleeding for 12 years. This is a chronic affliction. For those of you that have suffered from chronic conditions, you can imagine 12 years of suffering. And after all that has happened to her, after she has lost all that she has, after hope has probably dwindled, she has faith that even after 12 years, this is not permanent, but Jesus can heal her. Jesus can heal and transform those things that happened in an instant. And Jesus has the power to heal and transform even those things which have been around for a long time. When we think about the activity of Christ in our lives, those things that have been happening for a long time are not outside of God's reach. There's not a time limit by which it's too much time has passed that Jesus can't heal. Think of the implications this has for relationships that are broken, for marriages that are struggling. Twelve years is nothing to Jesus. Sixty years, whatever it may be, Jesus is not restricted by time in his ability to heal and transform. And so we get this detail of 12 years in both stories to point out there is no time limit on Jesus' ability to heal. Now, Jesus also has control of these situations. Jim Smith pointed this out for us. There's a switch that happens The social setting is changed in both instances because these examples of healing, healing are a manifestation of God's grace, and these are for the purpose of God's glory. And in the case of Jairus' daughter, this is a public event. There are people who know that Jairus' daughter is sick, that Jairus' daughter is going to die. It's a public event, but when Jesus goes to heal her, he makes it private. It's not for everyone else to see. He puts out everyone except the girl's parents and the disciples he took with him. It's a little bit of a paradox that Jesus takes the public incident and makes it private and tells them not to say anything. Of course, we know it'll be hard to imagine that they won't because this girl who they presume dead is going to be walking around and playing in no time. But with the woman who is bleeding, Jesus took a private incident and made it public. Can you imagine this woman walking through the crowd? She has nothing left. She has been shamed and hurt over time. And there is nothing she desires more than to walk up discreetly to Jesus, to touch his cloak, and to walk away. She doesn't want to bother Jesus for any of his time. She just wants to touch his cloak. But Jesus takes that private moment 
and makes it public. In the middle of the crowd, in the middle of everyone pressing, in the middle, all of the, the hustle of the crowd, Jesus takes a moment to talk specifically to this woman. A public incident is made private, and a private incident is made public. Because Jesus has intention for what each of these should be made known. Faith and healing are not just for us, but for the demonstration of God's power. And Jesus has a reason, even if it seems paradoxical for us, on who gets to see this. The parallels continue, though. I'd say both of these stories contain what I would call ridiculous Jesus talk. Do you think of things that would qualify as ridiculous Jesus talk? Because Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Jesus has all power and majesty and authority of the Father that has been given to him. There's nothing that Jesus cannot do. And so he says things that sound utterly ridiculous to us. For Jesus to say to the people who have told Jairus about his daughter passing away, Jesus says to the crowd, the child is not dead, but asleep. These people are smart enough to know a dead body from a live body. And Jesus says something that seems utterly ridiculous. The people laugh at him. The child is not dead, but asleep. That's some ridiculous Jesus talk. But from Jesus' perspective, he knows that death is not the end. Death is not permanent. And this child will wake and will walk again. On the same token, though, in the midst of the crowd, Jesus says something else that just seems ridiculous to the disciples. Who touched my clothes, he asks. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? It doesn't make any sense to the disciples how Jesus could know this, how he could even ask that question. But Jesus is aware of everything that's happening and has an intended purpose for it. Both of these stories of faith and healing have proof. Proof of life and proof of healing. Do you ever think it's a strange detail that we're, we're told that after Jesus tells, don't tell anyone about this. He then told them to give the girl something to eat. Does that seem like just a strange detail tacked on to the end? In this time and culture, there were people who could claim to raise the dead, maybe animate the bodies. The term necromancer is not invented by the Lord of the Rings. It's a pretty old term of sorcery. And there were also those who could claim to raise up the ghost of a person. The body could be there, but they could claim a ghost. You know, I can bring this person back to life, at least in their spiritual form, but not their full body. For Jesus to tell these people, give her something to eat. And for her to eat in front of them is proof beyond the shadow of a doubt that she has been fully brought to life. That her body, all of her essence, is living. She's not a ghost. She's not an a dead body that's been somehow reanimated, she is fully alive. It's the same reason why we're given the detail that when Jesus is with his disciples after the resurrection, he eats a piece of fish. It's not about the fish as much as the fact that Jesus ate, proving that resurrection was full and true and complete. Proof of life 
and the woman experienced proof of healing. She was healed, not just that the bleeding stopped, but that she knew that she had been changed. She was freed from her suffering. She could feel it. But of course, as soon as she knows this, Jesus calls on her. And then the woman has to make a confession. Both these stories of faith and healing have a confession of faith. For the woman, after she's been cornered by Jesus, after she knows she can hide no longer, after Jesus has asked, who touched my clothes and keeps looking around, she came and fell at Jesus' feet and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. Up until this point, the dialogue of the woman has been all internal. The gospel writer, Mark, only knows the rest of the story that's filled in because of this moment of confession, this moment where she came to Jesus and confessed everything, probably including her story of all that had happened over the last 12 years that no one could heal her. And yet now, at the touching of Jesus' cloak, she was healed just as she expected to be. There's a confession of faith. There's also a confession of faith in Jairus' daughter's story. Jairus saying, please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus is confessing his faith that he truly believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. Both of these stories, after the confession of faith, receive words of assurance. Now, these two quotes carry a lot of weight And so I don't want to sell short in any way what's said here. But the words of assurance are these. Don't be afraid, just believe. And daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace, be free from suffering. These are all three powerful statements that Jesus has the authority to speak and make true. And he also says, don't be afraid, just believe. He tells this to Jairus at the tipping point in the story, when Jairus could lose all faith and hope. Don't be afraid, just believe. These are powerful words. But because these words are powerful, I'd add that they can also be dangerous and misused. If we make faith and healing a formula of X times Y equals Z. Your faith has healed you. Does that mean for those who have not been healed that they didn't have faith? I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine in the next slide. This is Mike. Mike means a lot to me. He's a friend of Caitlin and I's from our days in camp ministry. And if you can see from the picture, uh, Mike is certainly a man of faith. Um, Here we are at the lodge at Inspiration Hills. Mike has his Bible with him. Um, He is a man of faith. He is a man of deep care and concern for the scriptures. He's a man who loves God and loves God's word. The reason Mike has his Bible in his lap is because he's in a wheelchair. Mike cannot walk. When I first met him, he could not walk. And to this day, he still cannot walk. 
When I said those words can be powerful yet dangerous and potentially hurtful, Mike is one of the people that comes to mind. And some of you might have instances that come to mind as well. Mike has prayed for healing, that he could walk. And he has been prayed over for healing as well. And he has not been able to walk. And people have accused him before. When he did not stand up from his wheelchair and walk out of the room, people have said, well, you must just not have faith because that's why you haven't been healed. You must not have enough faith. I have a problem with that. For one, that's a good example of Christians saying stupid things. And for two, it is God who heals. And Mike's not being able to walk is not a lack of faith. And if you knew him and got to know him, you would know he is a man of deep faith. Why then has he not been healed? I talked, for Mike, I talked with Mike a couple times in the last few weeks, and uh, it was good to catch up with him, but also to talk specifically about this passage. And it's with his permission that I'm using a bit of his story. And Mike can tell you how hurtful it is when people accuse him of not having faith, when he is faithfully living his life for Jesus and is told, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. It's foolish. And he'll also tell you that he doesn't pray for healing anymore. He doesn't pray for the ability to walk specifically, in part because it would be really painful to live his life every day praying for the ability to walk and not being able to. Rather, his example in this is the Apostle Paul, who prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it was not. And Mike will tell you he has prayed for healing, he's been prayed over for healing, and he believes the answer is no, you will not walk. He won't refuse prayers, but he would say it is nice to ask before you pray for people and not just publicly mob them, because that's happened to him as well. Once again, Christians doing foolish things good intentions, but insensitive and actually very hurtful for Mike. Especially when it's people that don't know him, who pray for him, he doesn't walk, and they tell him he doesn't have faith. Apostle Paul is his example. He's prayed for it. It has not been removed. But he has been made well. And those words of assurance are true for him to go in peace and be freed from your suffering? Mike will tell you he doesn't suffer. There are things that would be a lot easier if he could walk. You can imagine being a camp counselor is hard enough of a job, much less if you're a camp counselor in a wheelchair. It would have been easier if he could have walked for certain things. But he would also tell you that God was most glorified in his testimony because he cannot. There is a story that he has to tell that only he can. For those who are struggling, Mike has given a lot of hope. And not because of miraculous healing, but because he can say in earnest that Christ is made perfect in our weaknesses. It's not a matter of faith that keeps Mike from being healed in terms of walking. But when we look closely at what's being said here by Jesus, Mike can say the same thing 
about himself, that his faith has healed him, and that he goes in peace and is freed from his suffering. In part because of the word that's operating here. Your faith has healed you. There's a very normal Greek word for that kind of healing. It's therapuo. It's where we get our word for therapy. But that's not the word used here. Or within these two stories, the word is sozo, which is the word for to save. It's the word for salvation. Think of how that reads differently. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And in the same way, when Jairus comes to Jesus, he says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that her life may be saved. Sodzo, save, is the word that we use for salvation. It's used 141 times in the New Testament. And it is in regards to being saved, to being saved fully. Sometimes that's accompanied by signs of miraculous healing. And God is glorified in that. But I know for some, for some like my friend Mike, he has been saved by faith through grace. He has been saved by faith. He has not been given the ability to walk, but he has been healed. He does live in peace, and he is freed from his suffering. This is all true by faith. It is by faith that we have been saved. Some experience miraculous healing. Some do not. This is territory in both the mystery and providence of God that we should be careful not to over-assume how much we know about it. But the same will always be true that our faith has saved us. And this, by the work of God and by the call of God, he will glorify himself in us by whatever means he sees to be most fitting. Your faith has saved you. My friends, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, in this sweet hour of prayer, we may look back and think about prayers that we have offered to you some that we have received a resounding yes and a confirmation and a call. Others that we still aren't sure what your will is. And still others, as we look back on times that we have prayed in earnest, that we have prayed in faith, and the answer has been no. Help us to remember that these are not times reflective of our lack of faith. But make us aware of your will. Make us aware of your will, of that your grace and mercy have been poured out upon us, and that it is by faith that we have been saved. It is by faith that we know your peace, and it is by faith that we can live lives free of our suffering by putting our hope in you. Lord, in our prayers, allow us to be bold, allow us to be wise. And allow us to always be seeking your will. In the name of Jesus Christ, whose faith in him will save us. Amen.